So from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 8, I'm sure that most of you have never heard this before. Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This is the word of the Lord today for you, his church. And may it teach us all the more deeply about the relationship between law and grace, between law and gospel, that we would be formed into God's loving people. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So in my nearly 30 years of ministry, I've flown on a lot of airplanes over time, probably not as much as some of you, but my fair share. And and you've heard plenty of my airport stories. Um, I also have uh, flight stories, like things that happen midair that are just kind of unusual, not the least of which was something that happened to me on a connecting flight one time between Cincinnati and Cleveland. I was on my way to a conference in Cleveland. I landed in Cincinnati. I had to get this connecting flight. So we get on the plane and, and something happened to me that day that had never happened to me before and it's not happened to me since. I got bumped up to first class. Now, I don't know how that happened to this day. I don't know why. I don't know if I won the lottery that day, but I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's only a 45 minute flight, but for 45 minutes, I'm gonna hang out with the beautiful people. Like, and, and I hear you get free stuff up there. So I'm looking for all the swag that I'm gonna get in first class. So I sit down and I notice that the woman across the aisle from me on an aisle seat, she's on an aisle seat. I notice she's probably late 20s, early 30s and like, Man, she is super put together, like very professional. And you take one look at her and you go, okay, that's a successful woman, business suit, sweater, you know, nice blouse, hair done up, really pretty, jewelry everywhere. I'm thinking, wow, okay, she's, she's a successful woman. And then as we're taxing out, I hear her say, as, as you do sometimes, you're not trying to listen to other people's conversation, but you still hear what they say. I hear her say to the guy by the window, as she puts two pills in her mouth and drinks some water, she says, I always take a couple of Valium before I fly. I'm a nervous flyer. All right, the understatement of the century. Okay, this woman proceeds to, I mean, go hysterical When the wheels leave the ground, she's fine. And then the plane leaves the ground. And I mean, she has a panic attack for all time. She is like, ah, she's screaming. She's got one hand on the forward wall, one hand on the seat back, like she's trying to hold the plane in the air. And she's yelling. And then she breaks out into a cold sweat. Off comes the jacket, off goes the sweater, unbuttons the blouse. The men in first class are wondering, how far is this going to go? Everybody's watching her. And then she passes out dead away in the chair. We haven't even gotten to 10,000 feet yet, people. 
and she is passed out. So the stewardesses have to unbuckle, get up. They come to render aid, pat her face. She wakes up, gets hysterical again. Out she goes again. Okay, so I won't, I won't bore you with everything else that happened, but finally after 45 minutes, we come in for a landing and the wheels touch the ground. And I promise you, it's like to her, nothing ever happened. The wheels hit the ground. She's like, ah, oh. and she turns to the guy by the window. She goes, I hate it when that happens. <laughs> Are you kidding me? So she buttons up the blouse, back on the sweater. Here comes the jacket. We touch up the makeup, brush the hair back. And she gets her bag and off she goes. And what the rest of us are just exhausted from this flight. But I never would have thought, based on what she looked like when I sat down, that that's what would happen on that flight. And I think we kind of know this in life. Sometimes the externals don't really match up to the internals. You know, you can't really always judge a book by its cover, right? And I want to use that today as kind of an idea to help us understand what we're going to start exploring for the next 10 weeks. Not today, but it starts next Sunday. We're going to start looking at each one of the Ten Commandments. And what I want us to think about today is the relationship between law and gospel, between law and grace, because law is about externals. It's about our behavior. It's what we do. It's what we say, things people can hear. Gospel is about internals. Gospels is about, is about heart. Now, I don't want you to think for a second that somehow we're in a new series. We're not. This is still counterculture. And we're saying to each other, you know what? The culture has answers to the questions we're asking. And so does our faith. So does the scripture. And so we want to look at both. So if you went to the culture today and said, well, tell me about the law. What kind of law are we under? And they would say, well, culture would answer and say, well, we're, of course, we're under the civil law. There are certain governmental laws that you have to abide by. You're going to get in trouble. But beyond that, it's the law of me, the law of self, right? And as long as I don't hurt anybody else, the only law I have to adhere to is me. I don't want to have to be submissive to or subject to any other authority other than that civil law. I am an authority unto myself. Well, you look in the church and you go, no, in the scriptures, we have the law of God. We actually have a higher authority who governs and dictates our behavior. But why does he do that? He does that to show us the path of life. And see, this is where I think Christianity gets a bad rap because so many people look at Christianity and they go, that's just a bunch of rules and regulations. You just gotta follow all those rules when that's not it at all when you understand the law in relationship to gospel, right? You can't see the law without using the lens of the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion. It's the good news of the redemptive purposes of God in Jesus Christ, that by his substitutionary death for you, you have been forgiven of your sins and you've been brought into a reconciled relationship with the Father. It's the biblical narrative. And we've been talking to you about this for weeks now. What's the biblical narrative? Creation, God made everything and then fall. So when we fell, when we chose to follow our own path instead of the path of God, that's when God had to give us the law. He ushers Adam and Eve out of the garden. He says, okay, eventually through Moses, the law comes down and he says, this is the path of life. Like if you wanna be in a relationship with me, here's what you need to follow. And I don't know how you felt, but as we read 
question eight in the 10 commandments, I'm not gonna read them again. It felt kind of daunting to me. Like, I don't know if you were going, you know, okay, check, I do that one. Check, yeah, oh, nope, nope, no, no on coveting. You know, so it's, it's a daunting list. And if that's all you ever think about, you, you learn that by looking at the law, your inability to keep it, that you need something else. And so that's why you need gospel. That's why you need to understand law in relationship to this work that God has done for you in Christ. And we always hold those two things in tension. So yes, for the next 10 weeks, Starting next Sunday, we're gonna be looking at the 10 commandments, but I wanna remind you today that we don't look at the 10 commandments in a vacuum. We look at the 10 commandments through the lens of the gospel. It's not just the externals, but it's the internals. And that's what Paul helps us figure out today in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, I know that most of you believe that when Paul sat down to write 1 Corinthians, that he was thinking, you know, I need to write a chapter in the Bible that would be great to say at weddings. So I think I'll just write about love. And we think it's this soupy, sappy wedding text that everybody reads. And actually I hate to burst your bubble, but it's not that. We don't read 1 Corinthians 13 accurately because what 1 Corinthians 13 actually is, is a stern rebuke to the Corinthian church because they don't understand the relationship between law and gospel. See Corinth, was like LA or New York. Corinth was the the thriving metropolitan economic center that if you wanted to be successful, if you wanted to make it in life, you went to Corinth. And so Corinth was full of ambitious people, powerful people, achievers, success-oriented people. And so what happens? Those are the people who make up the Corinthian church. And so they get into the church and they're used to being the leaders. They're used to having power. They're used to dictating outcomes. And so what happens in the church? There's not a whole lot of love. There's a lot of law. And so they start arguing with each other and they get divided and they get divided over leadership. Should Paul be our leader? Should, is somebody else better? They get divided over worship practices. Should we start church at 845 or should it be at 915? Right, oh, yeah, there's a, just a chuckle there, huh? So we're, we're talking about that. Or, or, or what about sexual practice, right? And so they were talking about all these things and Paul then writes this letter to them and he says, wait a second. And what he first does is he writes 1 Corinthians 12. And if you've not read 1 Corinthians 12 lately, go home and read that this afternoon. It's that beautiful chapter that describes the church as a body and how the church is intricately whole and harmonious. And remember, there's that one verse where it says the the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Every part of the body is significant. Every part of the body is needed. The little toe is important. You don't think so, break yours and see what happens. Right, every part. So he writes this beautiful text about the harmony of the body of Christ. He says, this is how it should be. And then in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, but... This is why you've made a mess of it. This is why the Corinthian church isn't like that. And he starts explaining how they need to grasp more deeply the relationship between law and gospel. So let's dig into what Paul is saying. First, your heart is never gonna be changed and transformed by using your gifts and talents. He says right off the bat, 
Chapter 13, verse one, if you speak in the tongues of men, if you can prophesy, if you've got all this knowledge, you've got incredible intellect, you can figure out the mysteries of life. You're a smart person, but you don't have love, then you've actually got nothing. And see, this is such common practice in 21st century American culture is we depend on our gifts and talents for our salvation. We believe that it's in what we do. And that's what law is. Law is external behavior. Law is the doing of life. We do this, we do that. And I can use my gifts and talents in order to be successful enough in order to show the world that I have value, that I, that I matter, that I have importance, that I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm using my gifts. And, and sadly, we see this. We see examples of this over and over again. And we especially see it in the church. Sadly, in the Wall Street Journal last month, they did their annual poll regarding the church in the United States, where they asked people, what are your thoughts and feelings about the church? For the first time since 1950, when they started taking the poll, less than half, only 48% felt positively about the church. And when asked why they scored it the way they did, their answer was the hypocrisy of leadership in the church. That too many times they've seen gifted people Charismatic people, great leaders, great talents, great achievers, build churches with thousands of people coming. And then what they learn is that the internals didn't match the externals, that the heart was different than the doing, that the being didn't match the doing of their lives. And it frustrates us. It complicates our witness. But friends, what you have to realize is you can do and do and do and still be out of touch with God. You can do and do and good do and it won't save you, but instead it will leave you empty. We can't save ourselves by using our gifts and talents. If we do that, we have, Paul says, nothing. But then he says, secondly, the human heart is neither going to be changed by virtue and goodness. And see, this is the one that snags us. It snags me, it's a story of my life, right? Because we can say, oh yeah, you know, using your gifts and talents to try to show everybody your worth and value and to be successful and save yourself. Oh, I can see how that's bad, da, da, da. But, oh, but I, I feed the poor. I, I do the homeless breakfast every Sunday. Oh, no, no, I go on, on mission trips. See, I do good things. I'm virtuous. But Paul says, if you, if you give everything you have to the poor, and in fact, you lay down your life, you give your body to the flames, but you don't have love, you actually gain nothing. It benefits you none in the eyes of God. You know, it was, it was uh, John Gerstner who said, it is not our sin that separates us from God. It's our damnable good works. Are any of you of the notion, the belief that by, by your virtue, that somehow you score points in some book with God that actually doesn't exist? Tim Keller says, it's possible to be virtuous and sacrifice your time and your money and your life and still be nothing, still have it mean nothing in the eyes of God. You don't score points by being good. It doesn't work that way. Maybe some of you have read Jane Austen's incredible classic novel, Pride and Prejudice, 
about the five Bennett girls and one of them needs to get married. And the middle girl is Mary and she's the one who is like super virtuous and is always kind of strutting about her goodness. And here's what Austin writes about Mary. Mary, in consequence of being the only plain one in the family, worked especially hard for knowledge and moral accomplishment at which she was impatient for display. It gave her a pedantic way and an arrogant manner. What's the key? Mary thought she was plain. Mary thought she didn't have any gifts, that she wasn't beautiful, that there wasn't anything necessarily about her to attract other people to her, to give her a sense of worth and value. So Mary said, what I'll do is I'll become virtuous and then I'll show them. And people, sad as it is for me to tell you, that's my story. I grew up feeling like Mary, like I had nothing. I was the biggest nerd in high school. And even in college, I was the guy three times. I took a date to homecoming or prom and she went home with someone else. I'm not lying, three times. And so I'm like, well, I'm not particularly attractive. I'm kind of nerdy. I'm not socially gifted. I'm socially awkward. And so what did I decide as this relationship with Jesus starts to grow? I thought, I'll become virtuous. Now, I don't think that was a conscious thought, but that's what I did. And God delivered me from that in Fort Myers, Florida, thankfully. When I went down to this broken, messed up church, and in my mind, I was going to fix them, right? Because I was virtuous. I'm gonna show them this is how you do church. This is how you love Jesus. And after a session meeting, God bless her, Elizabeth Daniel, wherever you are, thank you. God used you to change my life and ministry. Because after a session meeting, one night she came up to me and she said, David, she said, you're doing all these things, but you don't love us. And of course I protested. Of course I love you. Why do, why do you think I'm trying to do all this? But that night when I got home, I realized I didn't. I was just trying to show people my worth by fixing a broken church. Oh, see, look what I did. And from that day forward, God absolved me of an understanding that somehow I could save myself by my virtue. And I'm a better pastor. I'm a better husband. I'm a better friend because someone had the courage to say to me, you don't love us. So if we can't, if we can't be saved by what we do, if we can't keep the law in such a way that by using our gifts and talents or even being virtuous, even doing good things, if that can't save us, then, then what does? And what Paul says is you have to be changed by love. And so he goes into this wonderful personification of love. Love becomes a noun, not a verb. It's not Joe loves so-and-so. It's love, the noun, love is. Love is patient. Love is kind, and in those moments, in our human brains, we get, all, we get all twisted up and we think, oh no, it's another version of the Ten Commandments. It's more rules. I've gotta work on my patience. Oh no, I was rude. I haven't been kind today. We think it's more rules and regulations. It's not what Paul's saying. He's personifying love 
So who's the person? Love is this. God is love. God has revealed love to us in Jesus. And, and where do we see love explained and enacted more than at the cross? At the cross of Jesus. Where do you see patient suffering embodied? But at the cross. Where, where, where do you see more that he's, he doesn't hold wrongs against us? At the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Where do you see a love that always hopes and trusts and perseveres? Father, it's not my will, but thine be done. Where, where, where do you see love that never fails? Father, it is finished. What you find in 1 Corinthians is that God has loved you in Christ and he's loved you in specific ways and such that when you understand how you've been loved, your heart gets changed on the inside so that your externals more and more line up with who you are inside. You start seeing the law in a different way. Let me read you slowly the words to an old hymn that no one's ever heard of and we don't sing anymore, but the lyrics are so good. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. See, when it's just the law, it's duty. When it's just the law, we've become enslaved to something that we'll never be able to meet. But when we hear the gospel, when you hear his pardoning voice, a slave becomes a child of the king and duty becomes choice. You see the law differently. Why? Because God's loved you in that personified description of Paul. And because you've been loved, what do you wanna do? You wanna love God back. And John 14, 21 tells us, you show me your love for me in this when you keep my commandments. And so do you see the transforming power of law and gospel and that you have to have both? There's always a tension between those two things. If you let go of the law and all you have is gospel, you'll never take your sin seriously. You'll never understand how deeply you need a savior, why your relationship with God matters. But if you let go of the gospel, then you're crushed, then you're a slave. Then you'll always be burdened by trying to save yourself in a way that you never can. So it's always law and gospel. People in 1985, I was a 22-year-old narcissistic young man who believed he was the sun and all the other planets revolved around me. And then I got hit by a thunderbolt named Lee Bywaters. And all of a sudden, all my life became not about me, but it became about this desire I had to show her how much I loved her. That, that's all the gospel is, is when you understand 1 Corinthians 13, that love is all these things. Then all of a sudden you get hit by a thunderbolt and your life is not about you. It's about your obedience to the one who has loved you in Christ and redeemed your life such that a slave becomes a child and duty becomes choice and wondrous response. So may that be the heart and the means
by which we come to the table this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how often we get tripped up in the doing of the Christian life with feeling that somehow we need to earn our way, achieve our way, use our gifts, use our virtues to score points that somehow lead to salvation, but you tell us, no, no, all all that gets you nothing unless you understand gospel, unless you understand love. And nowhere is that love embodied more clearly than at this table. And so I pray that our hearts would be transformed on the inside so that who we are on the outside becomes more and more a reflection of your goodness and grace. So come, Lord Jesus, take these common elements of bread and cup that they might become for us the living presence of your broken body and shed blood, that we who receive them would know of your nourishing and abiding love today and unto eternity. We ask it in the name of Christ our Lord.